What we want to do now uh, in the session that's before us and the time that we have before us is really say, how does Scripture speak into our struggles with depression and hardship? And, and what I want to say, and this is a little bit of a, an introductory comment that we'll continue to unpack, but I would say there's no other book, there's no other resource out there that speaks to the reality of life here in a fallen world, in a fallen body, with more clarity, with more honesty, but also with more hope than Scripture. And so that's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to do a little bit of an exercise. If we were sitting around round tables, I probably would have you do this together. But if you have your Bible handy, I have a list of several different psalms there. You can kind of run your finger up and down the list, and wherever it lands, maybe pick that psalm. But what I want you to do is I want you to turn to any one of these psalms, and I just want you to very briefly just kind of ask yourself three questions. Number one, how is their experience described? Just very simply, how do they describe their experience with depression? Number two, what seems to be or what do they give voice to as what might be the cause or causes of their despair or depression, right? And some of them might seem like it's somebody outside of me. It's a beloved companion. It's the wicked. It's, it's God, right? And oftentimes the psalmist will say, why do you stand afar off? Why have you forsaken me? Why do you rebuke me in your anger, right? What, what seems to be the causes that they give voice to? And then number three, one of the things that I would say pretty much in every psalm except for one, there's always an aspect or an attribute of God that, that helps people turn the corner, right? If, if we maybe say the psalms essentially do this, they are an invitation to speak out the human experience and it's an opportunity to meditate and to trust in a particular attribute of God. What is it? Is it the faithfulness of God? Is it the steadfast love of God? Is it how he has worked wonders of old? Is it, is it the fact that he hears and that he attends to our cry? In almost every one of these, except for Psalm 88, so if you choose Psalm 88, number three is going to be a little bit more difficult to find, but pretty much in all the other Psalms, there's going to be a, what I call the corner turner. There's going to be a way that the psalmist turn the corner. What is it? So uh, we'll spend about five minutes on that. So pick a psalm, read it through, and maybe begin to ask yourself some of these questions. And then we'll come back and, and just make some observations uh, together. One of the things in counseling when we're walking alongside those who are depressed, one of the pleasant surprises I think that people find is how descriptive and how honest scripture is about the human struggle. Uh, Steve Bloom writes this, he says, the Psalms treat depression more realistically than many of today's popular books on Christianity and psychology. David and the other psalmists often found themselves deeply depressed for various reasons. They did not, however, apologize for what they were feeling, nor did they confess it as sin. It was a legitimate part of their relationship with God. They interacted with him through the context of their depression. Right? Take that first question, how did the psalmist describe their experience? Psalm 6, verse 2 David says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but during uh, probably right at the end of the COVID pandemic, there was a, a famous article by a New York Times columnist, and they said, here, here is the word that seems to capture human experience 
over the past two years, we are languishing. We're languishing. We are devoid of hope. Life, life just is not meeting up to expectation. Try as hard as we might, trying to return to normalcy, whatever it might be, we are stuck. We're languishing, right? And as soon as that article came out, I turned to Psalm 6 and I said, God was talking about that. David was talking about that long before that column ever came out. Psalm 6, 6, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes, right? There's a richness there. People uh, who struggle with depression will tell you, I, I don't even know why I'm crying. I, don't, I, I can't control it. I just, I cry at the drop of a hat. Psalm 10, verse 10, the helpless are crushed. They sink down. Verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, the fatherless, and the oppressed. Uh, look at uh, Psalm, Psalm 22, the great Psalm of David that later on we realize are, are words for Christ himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Verse 17, uh, he says, I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Uh, look over at Psalm, uh, Psalm uh, 42, the Psalm that we read earlier. Verse four, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Deep calls to deep and the roars of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I'll turn over to Psalm 88, a psalm that ends in darkness and difficulty. Verse three, he says, my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, right? That's one of the common things I hear from people who are depressed is, I mean, I've, I've got nothing to give. I'm running on fumes. I have no energy. Even the smallest task, they, they take everything out of me. Verse six, you've put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavily upon me and you overwhelm me with all your ways, right? Again, you can go to psalm after psalm after psalm, and it's surprising because we might think, man, the majority of the psalms are, are these wonderful hymns of praise, which many of them are, but if you actually start reading the psalms consistently, you'll realize that, man, a majority of the psalms are actually these reflections and these invitations where people invite the Lord into their life, where people say, Lord, this is what's hard in my life. And there's never any sense where the Lord is uh, indifferent to that. There's never any sense where the Lord doesn't care about that. But rather, I think the Psalms in and of themselves are a reminder and a reflection to us that you know, there is something in particular that draws us to the Lord in the midst of our struggles uh, that actually encourages us uh, with courage and with hope to be able to draw near to him in some of those times. Moving, to, moving out of the Psalms, looking at people in the Bible who struggled with depression, if we just take a brief look, again, we're not going to go over all of these people, and I'll entrust you to do that on your own timing, but 
one of the things I think that is helpful for those of us who have struggled or care for those is just to look at the full scope of Scripture and the full story of Scripture and realize that more often than not, the people that we find in Scripture are people who are struggling, not just with depression, but but people who are imperfect, people who have relational struggles, people who face hardship and difficulty, right? Think about someone like Moses in Numbers 11. He says, I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me, talking to God. He says, if you treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness, right? There, there we might say, well, man, what is at the forefront of Moses's experience of hardship? Well, it's, it's people, right? The people that he's leading, they prove to be more burdensome to him than they seem to be a joy for him to leave, right? Again, when we think about depression, we think about those struggles, we realize, okay, that, that is a cause oftentimes of our depression and our struggle. It is people in our life, right? People in your life don't always do exactly what you want them to. Your children disobey you. They rebel against you. They don't heed your authority, right? Uh, your spouse, maybe you're in a marriage where your spouse is an unbeliever or there's disconnection or, or difficulty in your marriage. And, and oftentimes we realize, man, in our human relationships, that is a context in which uh, we face the difficulties and hardships of life and experience despair and depression. And what we would say to that is you're not alone in that. You know, someone like Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, 6 through 8, towards the, the back end of that passage, it says, therefore Hannah wept and she would not eat and Elkanah, her husband, said, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And then this, this fascinating phrase, this observation, why is your heart so sad? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons, right? There's a, a little bit of a kind of like that quick over-spiritualization, right? I mean, look around you. Can't you see all the good things that, that God has given to you? I mean, at least you have a husband, right? At least you have this to be thankful for, right? But, but what I want to draw your attention to is just that observation of, I mean, why is your heart so sad? What, what you see there, again, is what Scripture would say is this, sense that we are embodied souls, right? Why is your heart? Well, he can't really see her heart in terms of how Scripture helps us understand the heart. But there's something about the fact that we are embodied beings, that we're psychosomatic wholes, right? That you can't tear one apart from the other, where what's going on in our hearts, right? It's going to have physical manifestation, Right? There's something that's weighing her down, right? In the Psalms, it says, man, anxiety in a man's heart, what? It weighs him down. And oftentimes, when those dynamics happen, right, it gets reflected in our countenance, and people see that. We'll talk about on Sunday, someone like Job. In Job 9-11, Job says, behold, God passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Again, when you read the Psalms, and some of the Psalms, perhaps even that you read, one of the, one of the one of the lines of human experience for many people struggling with depression is this, God is absent. He is not there. He's silent. He's disengaged. He's indifferent. He doesn't care. He's standing afar off, right? There, there's something about depression, right? And we think about that odd filter, right? We might know true things about God. We might know that God is near to us. He's near to the brokenhearted. Uh, he's a refuge in times of trouble. But there's something about depression that turns that, right? Well, he might be there for a lot of other people, but he's not here for me. Yeah, he's a refuge for so-and-so. He's a, he's a refuge and a fortress for, for this person, that person, but not me. There's something different about me and that relationship with God then makes it very difficult to relate. And again, what we would say is you're not alone in that. There have been many people before you that have struggled with that. 
Someone like Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, 4, it says, Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Right, and again, I'm assuming that you're good students of the word. You know some of the ups and downs of Elijah's story, right? Coming off this huge mountaintop type experience with the prophets of Baal and then fleeing for his life from Jezebel and realizing in, in that moment, right, what, is, what seems to be the very first thing that God does in his care for Elijah. He, he just ministers to him physically, right? comes to him and he feeds him and he provides for him right long before there's ever a revelation or a quote-unquote teaching of who God is and this is what you should do. God just cares for him, ministers to him in his depression. Someone like Nehemiah, Nehemiah 2, 1 through 3, again, uh, the king says to Nehemiah, he says, why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Again, that dynamic of, man, something that's going on inside of you, something that's happening in your heart necessarily also means something's happening outside of you. Something's happening at least physically that's noticeable. Uh, Think about someone like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet that oftentimes is associated with depression and despair and difficulty. In Jeremiah 20, verse 18, Jeremiah says, Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow? and spend my days in shame. Job Job himself also says something like that. Essentially, in one of the earlier chapters, Job says, why was I born? Why am I here? Right, that existential angst. And again, for those of you who have struggled with depression, you, you say, that's it. I felt that. I've experienced that. Why am I even here? Why was I even born? Think about Paul. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, right? All of those different pairs, right, of being afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. In particular, that word there, perplexed, has our modern-day connotations of anxiety, right? This mental confusion, this haze oftentimes that is associated with both anxiety and depression. Paul says, yeah, I've, I've been perplexed, but not driven to despair, right? Again, why do we talk about all of these people? Well, we talk about these people because oftentimes I think we think, well, the Bible's just full of really good people who always do the right thing. And what we realize is, no, that's actually not the case. The people in the Bible that God gives to us by way of these stories, they are more like us than they are different. These are people who have lived life like us on a fallen world and who have experienced the ups and downs in the travails and triumphs of depression and difficulty. So in the time that we have left, how might we summarize then the teaching of Scripture about depression? What might we say can Scripture teach us to help guide our thinking in our posture towards those who struggle or for those of you here tonight who do struggle? Here's the first one. Again, in some ways, it serves as a helpful bridge from what we just talked about to these principles, and it's this. Christians struggle and battle depression. And I hope that's not a shocking statement to you tonight, but for some of you, it might be. Uh, Depression is not just something that non-Christians or unbelievers struggle with. Christians struggle and battle 
with depression. Whether it's figures in the Bible or in history, depression does not discriminate. Depression is not in and of itself a sign of weak faith or no faith. Uh, Depression doesn't negate the biblical commands to be rejoicing or to be joyful. We'll see that a little bit later on. But we also realize that for a lot of people, and people like Paul and Moses and others who struggle with depression, they were able to do that while still being in relationship with God. Thinking about historical figures, Charles Wesley famously struggled with depression, and Susanna Wesley wrote this about her husband, Charles. She said, my beloved's anguish was so deep and was so violent that reason itself seemed to totter in its throne. And we sometimes feared that he, talking about Charles, we sometimes feared that he would never, ever preach again. Right? Lest you fear that depression is just for a subset of non-Christians or non-believers or maybe really weak Christians, what I want you to hear, brothers and sisters, tonight is that Christians of all levels of maturity at varying spots in their journey of faith have struggled with and have battled depression. Number two, number two, living in a broken and a fallen world contributes to our depression. Living in a broken and a fallen world contributes to our depression. And and friends, this is where I would say Scripture's story, Scripture's narrative to us then is actually more helpful to us than if we didn't have Scripture, right? Again, if you just approach life from a very naturalistic or humanistic philosophy or worldview, and if we understand the world as just, hey, everything's evolving, everything's getting better, therefore you should be happy and live a happy life— it makes it very difficult then to actually reconcile that with the life that we all experience. Because if we're all told, hey, everybody is essentially a good person and all of life is just moving towards this really happy ending, what do we do then with this fundamental sense of of sadness and difficulty and hardship? Well, Scripture makes sense of it, right? All the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 where we realize what are the implications of Adam and Eve's sin? In verse 17 in Genesis 3, God says to Adam, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, right? God was very honest with Adam and Eve, right? This perfect uh, Edenic paradise that God embedded Adam and Eve to, right? God says, because of your sin, because of what you have done, right? This life now that you will live is going to be a life of pain and toil, right? Paul kind of frames it like this in Romans chapter eight. He says, all creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for creation was subjected to what? happiness, joy. No, He says, no, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, right? We live life in a fallen world, right? We live life in a fallen world where things are not the way that they should be. Number three, that depression can be deepened and heightened when we live life apart from God. We see that very clearly in scripture. In Proverbs 26, 12, the author says this. He says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? He says, there's more hope for a fool than for him. 
Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? When, when you and I seek to live life in this world apart from God, we actually remove the only true and stable source of hope that we have. And when we do that, when we try to excise God out of our world, which is what our culture has done, uh, which most people in the world have done, right? We've actually removed the one true source of hope and help for us when we try and live life apart from God. Listen to how Jeremiah describes it and coming at it from a, from a different perspective. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2.13, he says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and not only have they forsaken me, but they've also done something else, right? They've made another movement. Number two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water, right? Jeremiah is saying, listen, you have forsaken God. You've tried to get rid of God in your economy of thought. And in the midst of doing that, you've tried to go and pursue these other things that you think are going to bring you happiness. You've pursued vocational promotion and you've, you've tried to pursue all of these different things to make you happy. And what you realize is it's like trying to dig a well and you never hit water. You look at the bottom of the well and it's just dirt. There is no water, right? That is in some ways the, the framing point for depression, right? We, we seek after other things. We think that other things are going to hold out hopes for pleasure or for happiness or contentment or satisfaction. And, and we achieve those things or we see those things when we realize we need more of that or we want more of that or, man, it's not what I thought it would be, right? When we seek to live life apart from God and when we seek to live life apart from the way that God designed and created us to be, ultimately, I think the end result is depression. It is despair, Number four, uh, depression impacts our body. Depression impacts our bodies and impacts our bodies in significant ways. I'll just keep reading a little bit from Romans 8. In Romans 8, not only does Paul talk about just the fallenness and the brokenness of the world that we live in, but he also talks about the brokenness of our bodies. He says, not only the creation, but Paul says in verse 23, we ourselves, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. Uh, Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he kind of makes an analogy about an earthly tent. He says, man, in this earthly tent that we have, in this earthly dwelling that we have, we are groaning. We are groaning. That word groaning there, right? If you've ever talked to someone who struggles in the depths of depression, there's something about that word groaning which immediately it resonates with you. When they're talking, there almost seems to be some, something guttural about their concerns, about their hardships, right? The, the sense of life, uh, of life and joy seems to be removed, and what you're left with is just this groan, this murmuring, this sense of life is difficult, right? Depression can impact our bodies in those ways, and we've spoken about numerous examples of people in Scripture who have suffered physically, but because we have the time and because I think it's helpful, I want to uh, remind us about two people historically also where depression was uh, a feature or at least was a significant part of their story. And again, people that we would typically associate with being uh, quote-unquote heroes of our faith, people that quote-unquote have it all together, right? I think about someone like Martin Luther. Martin Luther famously struggled with physical aspects and the physical impact of depression. Uh, Luther struggled from excruciating kidney stones and headaches, uh, complaining about constant buzzing in his ear and ear infections and, and incapacitating constipation. 
If you Google Martin Luther and depression, physical symptoms, there were scores of materials of Luther talking about the physical struggles that he faced in some of these situations. Luther writes this, he says, I nearly gave up the ghost and now bathed in blood, talking about some of these open wounds that he had that wouldn't heal. He says, I nearly gave up the ghost and now bathed in blood can find no peace. What took four days to heal immediately has now opened and is torn again. In a letter to his dear friend Melanchthon, Luther wrote this. He says, for more than a week, I have been thrown back and forth in death and hell, right? Again, that language reminds us because the psalmists say, hey, I feel like I've gone down to the pit. I feel like I've gone down to Sheol. Luther echoes that. He says, for more than a week, I have been thrown back and forth in death and in hell. My whole body feels beaten. My limbs are trembling. He says, I almost lost Christ completely, driven about on the waves and storms of despair and blasphemy against God. But because of the intercession of the faithful, God began to take mercy on me and tore my soul from the depths of hell. Right? Again, when we think about Luther, right, we think about Reformation, we think about this bold man nailing, you know, 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg, Germany, right? We don't, we don't think about this Luther, right? Somebody who famously struggled physically. Think about someone like Spurgeon. One of the recommended resources for you is a book called Spurgeon's Sorrows by Zach Eswine. Spurgeon famously struggled with depression and talked about it openly. Eswine writes this about Spurgeon's struggle with depression. He says, from the age of 33, physical pain became a large and a constant feature of life for him. Spurgeon suffered from a burning kidney inflammation called Bright's disease. He struggled with gout, rheumatism, neuritis. The pain was such that it soon kept him from preaching for one-third of the time. Added to that, overwork, stress, guilt about stress began to take their toil, and all of this in the public eye was jumped on by his critics, not making it easier to bear. The suffering, they argued, rather predictably, was of judgment from God, right? Again, Spurgeon's getting it from all of these different aspects. His body's suffering, he's getting it socially, right? What I want you to see is that, again, Christians battle and struggle with depression, and that that struggle oftentimes takes place in our bodies. Uh, Things like chronic pain, right? Many of you struggle with chronic pain. Maybe you struggle with MS. Maybe you struggle with fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, right? There's, there's something about chronic pain that can be debilitating for people, uh, that can bring about despair and depression, right? Again, they have, they have faith. They trust in the Lord. But just the, the physical impact of their suffering makes it difficult to, to see hope and to have hope in the midst of their struggle. Number five, Another principle that we can draw from Scripture is this, is that spiritual warfare is also an often neglected factor in our struggle with depression. Spiritual warfare is an often neglected factor. And again, if you can see where we're going, right, all we're identifying are all of these different layers, right, from those nested circles of depression oftentimes has physical ramifications, there's spiritual ramifications, there's social ramifications, right? Spiritual warfare can be and oftentimes is a factor in our struggle with depression, right? Satan's name, right, in Hebrew means accuser or adversary, right? And I think in so many ways that tells you all you need to know as it relates to some of the possible ways and some of the possible roles that he can play in our experiences of depression. 
In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan is described as a person who accuses the redeemed day and night before our God. Right, this, this idea of Satan being an accuser of the brethren then uh, really reminds us then and is helpful to understand in some of what Luther himself wrote. Luther writes this again in his struggle with depression, talking about Satan. He says, for as soon as God's word became known through you, he says, the devil himself will afflict you. He will make a real doctor out of you and will teach you by his temptations to seek and to love God's word. He talks about the frightening things that he struggled through the devil's raging that ultimately turned him, he said, into a fairly good theologian, driving him to a goal that he never would have reached. Luther goes on to say this. He says that the devil can do nothing against the teachings of the Lord. He says he can attack the person lying, slandering, cursing, and ranting against him. One of the common themes that I oftentimes hear from people who struggle with depression, people who are Christians, who are, who are beloved by the Lord, who go and attend a local church, who are embedded in the body, they will say things to me like, well, God doesn't really love me, right? I'm not good enough for God, right? God, God probably is just tired of me, right? I've, I've, I've kind of exhausted God's help or God's mercy, right? Where do those thoughts come from? right? Who has the most to gain by getting us to doubt our standing before the Lord, right? I think Satan is, is definitely behind that. Ed Welch writes this, he says, be alert to spiritual warfare. Depressed people are very vulnerable to Satan's claim that God is not a good God, but yet Jesus's death on the cross proves God's love for you. It is the most powerful weapon that we have to stand against Satan's lies. It reminds me of what Paul reminds us in the great uh, chapter in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, where moving through this wonderful chapter at the very end, he says, listen, who can, who can condemn you? Who can separate you from the love of God, right? And he begins to list off all of these different things, and he says, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. And I'll always ask people, are, are, are you in creation? Are you one of God's created people? Well, yes. Well, God's saying, listen, not any you yourself, you can't separate yourself from the love of God. And I think oftentimes the one who has the most to gain by causing us to doubt that reality and the truth of the gospel, it is Satan. He is our adversary. He is, as Peter says, what? He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I watch a lot of Lion King and Disney movies and a lot of Discovery Channel with having four kids. And I've learned a few things about lions. I'm not an expert. But what I know about lions, right, is there are kind of two main ways that they, that they operate. One is through loud intimidation, right? They just scare people off just because they're so big. They're so huge. They're the king of everything. They're at the top of the food chain. There's just something about this loud, intimidating presence that lions bring that just scare everybody but they're also really sneaky, right? They sneak up on their prey and they attack them in moments where the individual or that prey is least suspecting of it. I think that metaphor then that Peter uses then is so apt for how oftentimes Satan operates in our lives. Sometimes it's this loud intimidation, right? You know, you're not good, you're worthless. And then sometimes it's a little bit softer, it's a little bit more sneaky, it's a seed of doubt that can be planted. Yeah, you're really not good. Yeah, you really are worthless. Yeah, those people at church, yeah, no wonder they're moving away from you. You're too much of a burden, right? You, 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 you're, you're too much for people to handle. 
you know, why are you always so down? Can't you be happy, right? Those little thoughts, if we begin to trace back, we have to untangle some of those lies and call them out for what they are. That's number five, spiritual warfare is oftentimes a neglected factor in our struggle with depression. Number six, uh, depression doesn't mean we cannot grow in the Lord. This is, this is an encouragement for all of us out here tonight. Depression does not mean you cannot grow in the Lord. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He says, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And then later on, he says in chapter 7, verse 4, he says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. He says, I have great pride in you, talking about the Corinthian church. He says, I'm filled with all comfort because he says, in all of our affliction, I'm overwhelmed and overflowing with joy. Now, how does that happen, right? How in the world can you be, can you be afflicted? Can you be depressed, but still overflowing with joy? Well, I think the, the fact of the matter is, is that oftentimes in those moments of despair and depression, you also have the ability to what? To call your heart to hope in the Lord, right? That's what, that's what the sons of Korah do in Psalm 42, right? They, they speak truth to themselves. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in the Lord. In the midst of my difficulty, in the midst of my depression, that does not, that does not mean that I cannot grow in faithfulness and in Christ's likeness. Think about what Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, right? We always see 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We forget, well, yeah, Paul's writing this in a jail cell, chained to a Roman guard, right? Paul is saying, listen, in the midst of this, he says, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low, Paul was low. I mean, it seemed hopeless. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Depression can inhibit your ability to grow in the Lord, but it ultimately cannot impede your ability to grow in the Lord. And that's an encouragement then for all of us, right? Because sometimes it can feel like depression is a straitjacket. It is so paralyzing to us. So a lot of times when I'm talking to people who are struggling, I'll say, what, what does a simple act of faith, what is a, a simple act of moving towards God, what does that look like for you, right? It, it might be as simple as simply doing what the Psalms do, right? Lord, have mercy, right? Something as simple as what we call breath prayers, just saying, Lord, help. Lord, have mercy. You're growing in godliness in that moment, right? You might think, man, I can't grow I'm not teaching the Bible. I'm not doing all these other things that my peers or colleagues are. But can you cry out to the Lord? If you can cry out to the Lord in the midst of depression, friend, you are growing in Christlikeness. You're growing in dependence in him. And that should be an encouragement to all of us tonight. Number seven, scripture offers hope for how the Lord sees depression, right? There's, there's a beauty in scripture that we see that the cries of our heart, the difficulties that we face, the situations that we are embedded in, the Lord sees that. From a micro level, right? God sees our suffering. He hears it. In Exodus 7, there's this wonderful line where it says, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them, right? There's always this movement in scripture that sooner rather than later, God is not just a God who sees. He's not just a God who knows. He's not just a God who hears, but God is a God who moves and acts on our behalf. 
He doesn't just kind of stand afar off and say, yeah, okay, here we are again. You got yourself stuck again. Try a little bit harder. But our God is a God who sees, who hears, who knows our sufferings, and he moves and acts. He moves and acts right fully and finally in the person who in Christ, right? He, he sees the mess, he sees the depression, he sees the despair, and he says, I'm moving towards that. I'm not moving away from it. That's an encouragement to us. God sees us in the midst of our depression. He's not blind or indifferent. And so much so that one of the ways that Christ himself is described to us is that he is a what? He is a man of what? Sorrows, fully acquainted with grief. He is someone who is, who is made like his brother so that he can be our perfect and merciful and great high priest. And not only at that micro level, but then even at a macro level, right? We are all headed towards a final reality, a final place that is real. And it's not just a, a figment of our imagination. Those who believe are headed to a place where depression will be no more. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, the Apostle John says, He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Right? On a micro level, God sees us, He hears us, He knows us, and He delivers us. And from a big picture story, right, all of human history is headed towards that final point of consummation. That, and friends, listen, that is a hope that medication can't give you. That is a hope that a therapist can't give you. That is a hope that we only have in the Lord. A hope that, listen, earth is not our final home, right? This body that we all have, right? Uh, good news, it's gonna get traded in. This body of death that we have, right? We'll get a perfect resurrected body. That is, that is where the trajectory of human history is going. That's how the Lord sees this problem ultimately ending. Number eight, finally, and we'll close with this. Our suffering ultimately will not be wasted. Our suffering will not be wasted. I think about Job, right? And we'll again talk about Job on Sunday. Job is this wonderful person that we have in Scripture because I think it's a reminder for us. Job goes through immense suffering, right? He's got question after question for God. God, why am I going through this? God, what is happening? And everybody has a reason for it. You know, his three friends are experts in it. At the end of the day, you know, you know what Job learns about his suffering? Nothing. Nothing. God comes to him in Job 38, and guess who does all the question asking? It's God. There's no answers given. What God says is, here's in the midst of your suffering, here's what is most needed. It is a revelation of who I am. It's a revelation of my power, my presence in your life. Job never gets an answer to his sufferings. He doesn't. And so what I think we understand and what we can draw comfort from is that ultimately on this side of heaven, we might not fully understand why our suffering is happening, why we are struggling in the way that we are, but what we can have a confidence of and what we can have a confidence in is that God is never going to waste the suffering and the despair and the depression that we find ourselves in. In Psalm 119, David says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And in verse 71, he says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, right? That, that in some situations and in some cases, right, our suffering draws us closer to the Lord. It draws us closer to his word. But there are other times where those, those endpoints, those terminal points of why am I going through what I'm going through might not ever be known to us. Martin Luther says this, he says, trials teach us to not only to know and to understand, but also to experience how right and true, how lovely and how mighty 
and how comforting God's word is. It is wisdom supreme. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, hundreds of times I've been able to give a helpful grip to brothers and sisters who have come into that same condition, a grip I could never have given if I had not known this deep despondency. Right? There are certain times where our suffering will become clear to us in terms of why we're going through what we're going through, and then other times where it won't be. But what we can confidently know is whether or not this suffering is being used to grow us, to be a comfort to others in the midst of their affliction, or whether or not it's just a part of God's redemptive plan for us, we know that God is ultimately up to good in the lives of those who believe. He is completing that work of redemption that he guaranteed and that he promised to us. And so that is an immense comfort to us. It's an immense comfort to all of us who are caregivers. It's an immense comfort to all of us who are strugglers as well. Tomorrow, what we'll uh, have time to move into is to say, okay, based off of all of this or in light of all of this, how do we actually help those? What are helpful ways? What are wise ways that we come alongside those who are struggling, right? Uh, recounting all of these principles, uh, you know, there's got to be a way that we do that, right? Nobody was ever talked out of their depression, right? So how do we actually take the truth of Scripture and how do we actually minister the word to others? And so we'll dedicate a large portion of our time together tomorrow uh, to investigating that and to really growing together in that. So I hope you'll join me again tomorrow. Uh, until that, though, let me pray for us and close our time. Uh, Father, we come to you this evening. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, which is true, which is, as Luther said, it is wisdom supreme. Lord, we're thankful that in the ups and downs of our life, in, in what David calls the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, we're thankful that you are never far from us. You are our shepherd. You are guiding us. You are leading us. You are the shade at our right hand, ready and eager to give us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Lord, we're thankful for that. Lord, I pray that you would gather us again tomorrow uh, to help us grow in our skill uh, and in our competencies to help other people. And we pray and ask towards that end in Christ's name. Amen.